This is a podcast from Radio Molly, a digital radio station for Irish literature, broadcasting from Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, located on Dublin's St. Stephen's Green. For more from Radio Molly and the Museum of Literature Ireland, visit radio.molly.ie. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that buying Molly membership for yourself, your family or a friend is the best way to support the museum and its programming. Head over to molly.ie forward slash membership to sign up. Thank you for listening. UCD has a particular focus on equality, diversity and inclusion. So we've come together with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland, in this project called Past, Present and Pride. It's a, it's a way for us to, to work with, to interview, to hear the voices of LGBTI writers, um, Irish writers and perhaps some international writers, a way to give voice to, to the LGBTI experience, to advance um, issues of, of diversity, inclusion and equality. I'm Paul Dalton, I'm a clinical psychologist um, I work in UCD and I also work in, in St. Vincent's uh, Hospital in Allen Park. It's a great pleasure and honour today for me to have a conversation with Adiba Jaigudar, a graduate from UCD, and to welcome her back uh, to UCD and to, to Newman House. So, Adiba, Jai Gudar. How did I do? Jai Gudar. Jai Gudar. I do beg your pardon. I've been practicing that. Jai Gudar. You're, you're, you're so welcome to, to Molly. You're so welcome to Newman House in St. Stephen's Green, where UCD began its life back in, oh, 18, 1854, I think. Um, and you're so wel- welcome to Past, Present, Pride. You're our a fourth um, guest, and uh, and we're we're able to be outside today, so we're we're delighted, and we've a we've a wonderful uh, background uh, track as well to keep us company. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. It, it, it really it really is it really is our, our pleasure. It really is our pleasure. Um, Adiba, you were you were born in in Bangladesh, mm-hmm. and you lived in Bangladesh until you were ten. Mm-hmm. And you've been living in Ireland since. You did an undergraduate degree in English and history mm-hmm. in, in UCD, and a postgraduate, an, an MA in postcolonial studies in the University of Kent. Mm-hmm. I got that right? Yes. Um, you've been busy. Yes. You've been busy. <laughs> you've been busy. Yeah. And uh, and am I right in thinking that you have written? and published both your novels, award-winning novels, during the pandemic? Um, actually, no. Oh. I wrote both of them before the pandemic. Oh. Um, I published the first one during the, well, I published both of them during the pandemic, and the second one I revised during the pandemic. Okay, okay. So you were, um, you had a busy pandemic. Yes, I did, yes, definitely. <laughs> and, and we were saying earlier on that today, Today is the first real-life event that you've had for 15 or 16 months. I mean, technically, in my life, because, you know, I've not, I've not done, like, a real-life event as an author, um, because my, it, it's all been during the pandemic, so. 
That's extraordinary. Yeah. That, that your your career as an author has been um, has been remote or has been mm-hmm. has been has been virtual in some ways. Yeah, so it's is, been it's been a very unique experience. I, I, I yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. The the, the, the most um, the most challenging part of that. Um, I think it's just been not able to meet people face to face because, um, especially as somebody who writes young adult, um, you don't really get to interact with your target audience um, like you might in person. You know, if you have events or if you have signings, and you know, teenagers might come and um, speak to you or get their book signed. Um, you don't really get that experience mm-hmm. virtually because virtually, you know, you're usually doing events with other authors or mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and librarians, uh, sometimes you might do a school visit, but even then, you know, it's not that one-to-one experience. So I really don't know what that experience is like. And I would, you know, I would love to have that at some point. I, I hope that's going to happen. Well, to, to, today is the beginning maybe of, yes, of the, the, the beginning of that. Were there any, any, any um, kind of plus sides to, to working the last 16 months in a pandemic? Yes, for sure. It's definitely been, you know, accessibility. Um, because I've been able to do events um, internationally. I've been able to do events, you know, in the United States, um, also like just in different parts of the world um, and being able to meet so many people that I just never would have been able to otherwise. So I'm definitely grateful for that. You, you, you describe or, or you're, you're described as a, uh, a, a YA writer for mm-hmm. people who might be familiar with that. Tell mm-hmm. us what that means. So YA is um, a category that stands for young adult. So it's basically writing fiction for teenagers. So young adult, it can be classified in different ways, I think, in different countries. Um, but usually you're looking at ages 13 to about 18 for young adult. Okay, okay, okay. And your, your two books... The um, Hannah Wars and the, let me remember, the uh, Hannah and Issues Guide to Fake Dating. Honey and Issues Guide Hany, to Fake Dating. Honey and Issues Guide to Fake Dating. So they, and they're both targeted at kind of 13 to 18 year, year olds? Yeah. Yeah. What brought you that direction? So I think when I was in that age group, Um, I didn't have any books that were representative of me. So I was reading um, a lot of books just about like, just about white people, about, you know, non-queer people. And so that was, that was difficult for me because books were so important to me. They were like my escapism, but then never have, never being able to see like a reflection of myself, um, especially when you're young, um, it makes it difficult for you to accept who you are and kind of come of age, as it were. Um, So that's definitely something I felt when I was younger. So then when I started seeing, you know, more diversity in young adult literature and reading a lot of books that did speak of, you know, the queer experience, the experience of being a person of color or both of those together, um, I felt like that's what I wanted to write because, you know, this is these are the books that I would have really wanted to read when I was younger. Um, I think for young people, these books are especially important because they really needed to kind of understand who they are more than maybe adults do. So as, as a psychologist, I'm really interested in that. Mm-hmm. What you said about kind of finding, finding or forming an identity um, in, in the absence of... Um, 
of finding yourself in literature or finding your, yourself, your, your own experience in books kind of reflected back at you. Mm-hmm. Um, and growing up for the first 10 years in, in Bangladesh, mm. what was that like? What was that like? T- tell me, what was it like growing up in Bangladesh? So actually, um, I didn't grow up just in Bangladesh. Um, I actually grew up between Bangladesh and Saudi Arabia. So I moved to Saudi when I was three years old. And then every six months, I would come back to Bangladesh. So it was six months in Saudi, six months in Bangladesh um, until I was nine years old. Um, so it was it was a really interesting experience. It was um, a really unique experience. And I think something that was very unique about it was that when I was in Bangladesh, I was you know surrounded by my family. So I was very privileged to kind of meet a lot of my family, get to know them and experience my culture um, and, you know, just like live in it. So I think that's why, you know, as an adult, my culture is so important to me. Um, But then when I lived in Saudi Arabia, even though, you know, we were the same religion um, in Saudi Arabia, and I don't know, I I think this is still the case now, but there is a lot of discrimination against um, South Asian people because we are viewed as second class citizens and we're viewed as labor. So, you know, there was a lot of, I felt a lot of ill will towards people Mm. like me when I was in Saudi. And Mm. I think for that reason, we didn't have a lot of interaction actually with Saudi people. It was a lot with other, you know, South Asian people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think even as I was growing up in countries where, you know, I was the majority, so to speak. um, Well, in Saudi, I guess I wasn't. But, you know, it was still people of color all around me. Um, I still felt that kind of exclusion when I was growing up. So those 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 layers of of exclusion mm-hmm. um, through, throughout the first the first ten years of your life, mm-hmm. and and not having um, not having an identity to kind of read into mm-hmm. um, available to you in mm-hmm. the books, um, tough, yeah, yeah, definitely. Tough. You 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 describe yourself as as a woman of color, mm-hmm. as a Muslim, mm-hmm. as a Bangladeshi and as a, a queer woman. Mm-hmm. Um, there, um, that's a lot for, for a young life to have managed mm-hmm. in different parts of, parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I, I'm particularly interested in, in being Muslim and being queer. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think it's, it's interesting again because um, when you're Muslim and you're queer, I think the first time you kind of experience that is through, not through yourself, through the lens of another person, because there is this idea that these two things are mutually exclusive. Um, So when I was younger, I very much had this idea that I wasn't allowed to be Muslim and queer, you know, that they were mutually exclusive. Um, I think a lot of people still have this idea and I still, you know, experience it nowadays. Um, But I think, again, as I grew older and, you know, I experienced more of the world around me and actually as I entered into online spaces and I actually met other queer Muslim people and I saw other queer Muslim people, I felt like my identity was more validated because, you know, I again, I was seeing reflections of who I was. So seeing other people say, I'm queer and I'm Muslim and there's, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. I can be both of these things. Um, that made me feel like, well, that means that I can be those things as well. You know, this is, this is a thing that, is actually valid, and I am valid in my identity. Mm. It, it, it's probably something um, people um, maybe will be will, will be struck by the the kind of Muslim and queer, the kind mm-hmm. of Muslim queer identity. 
not given a lot of air or maybe even something that we're not supposed to talk about. And, and I say this, I, I, I say this coming from a different um, but maybe similar version of it as Irish and Catholic and gay. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know how far we are apart on that, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm, I'm curious um, what that is like for you within your community, within your Muslim community. I, I think it's interesting that you said, you know, you are Catholic and gay and Irish because I think, like, I, I see the two experiences as very, very similar. And actually, like, I when I was writing The Henna Wars, this is something that I actually explored and I wanted to explore that, you know, in both these spaces, in Muslim spaces and Catholic spaces, there is the same kind of idea about what queerness is and the same kind of exclusion. So, you know, my main character in the same way she faces discrimination for being queer from her Muslim family or her Muslim community, she faces the same from yeah. her Catholic community. And this is the same, you know, the same thing for me because the same experience I have from my Muslim community, I've had it from Catholic people, you know, from the Catholic community. Yeah. So I remember, you know, going to school and being faced with, you know, homophobia and also being faced with like Islamophobia as well and a lot of other different things. Um, so for me, you know, the experiences have very much been the same, just coming from different communities. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. You, you were in secondary school here in a, in a, in a, Catholic, uh, yes. a, a Catholic secondary school yes. <laughs> as a woman of colour, mm-hmm. uh, Muslim and queer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary. Yeah. And I think we have a lot, I mean, thinking about um, coming from Bangladesh, um, a country that, that, that achieved its independence relatively recently in, mm-hmm. in early it's 70s. Actually, it's our 50th, 50th anniversary this, this year. This year, yes. okay. Um, and a former British colony like, like, mm-hmm. like ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, quite, probably quite, quite a lot in common. Actually, even more in common historically, because um, we also had, you know, the partition of India and Pakistan, which was done by the British and caused such massive rifts that, um, you know, it the the kind of um, religious religious wars that exist in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh right now, it was definitely, you know, because of that colonialism, because of that ill will that the British left between us in order to, you know, drive wedges between us. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bangladesh, actually, in 1971, we achieved um, independence from Pakistan, not from the British. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was, it's a very long, complicated history, but there's definitely a lot in common with Ireland. Yeah, yeah a, hu- a, a huge amount. And I don't know what the, what the experience of, of, of in Bangladesh is, but I know there's certainly that idea that when, um, when, uh, when, the, when the British left, um, that um, our kind of colonial uh, nature just kind of transferred over to the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. that they kind of stood in. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, was there something similar happened or? or? Um, I think in Bangladesh, not exactly, just because um, in Islam, we don't have, like our religion is not as institutionalized as um, I guess Catholicism is. Um, but what happened in Bangladesh was that, um, so India became independent in 1947. Um, and that was when partition happened. So the partition of India and Pakistan, that's when Pakistan was divided into East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh and West Pakistan. Um, so 
under Pakistani rule, um, the thing about Pakistan is that even though Pakistan and Bangladesh have the same religion, we're both majority Muslims, um, our cultures are incredibly different because Bangladesh is right beside India. So our culture is close to Indian culture. Actually, a lot of, um, a lot of the ways that we even practice our religion and our culture is derived from Hinduism because right. those are our ancestors. Sure. Um, so because of this, um, we had obviously a lot of tension between Pakistan and Bangladesh or East Pakistan, West yeah. Pakistan. Um, so one of the big issues was that um, Pakistan um, wanted to make their official language Urdu which is not what we speak in Bangladesh. We speak Bengali. We don't speak Urdu. Um, you know, we don't write in it. That's not our language. Um, so this caused huge tensions um, in Bangladesh, uh, in Pakistan. And that's kind of what led to, we had um, riots, uh, or we had, um, yeah, we had these riots to gain the right to speak our language. And that's actually what mm. led to International Mother Language Day, February 21st, which is now celebrated worldwide. Mm -hmm. But it started in Bangladesh. Um, it led to our war of independence, um, which, you know, which cost so many lives of Bangladeshi sure. people because there was a genocide. Um, you know, there were so many war crimes committed, um, many of which are still, you know, unanswered sure. for, sure. Um, as it happens with wars. Yeah. Um, and then in 1971, we finally gained our independence. So I think for Bangladesh, we're still kind of dealing with that trauma because right. it was so recent that we haven't really had time for, you know, that kind of, um, what happened with Ireland to kind of happen because right after one oppressive regime, we went into another oppressive regime. And I think um, we're still kind of gaining our footing. We're still trying to figure out who we are as a country. And Adiba, where do you see that kind of trauma lived out? Can you <laughs> So, you know, people might say, you know, um, so a, a post-colonial history mm -hmm. impacts a nation in a certain way. Mm -hmm. People have made suggestions in the past that Ireland's, that some of the alcohol problems, some of our, are the result of these kinds of things, or it might get kind of played out emotionally or psychologically in certain ways. Does, mm -hmm. Has the same thing happened or similar kinds of things happened? Um, I think it's possible. Um, I mean, I haven't lived in Bangladesh, obviously, for a long time now, so I can't speak for the country itself, but I think... There has been so much political tension in Bangladesh for a long, long time. It's calmed down a little bit now. But I think that's definitely because of the colonialism, because we don't, we don't really know who we are politically. Mm, and mm. obviously, being in this global world, a lot of our politics are directly affected by our like, previous colonizers, like Britain. Um, so that's definitely right. something. Um, I think psychologically as well, actually, in terms of queerness, I think we can see how colonialism has directly kind of affected how queerness is viewed in South Asian countries like Bangladesh. Um, because I don't know if you know this, but in India, um, you know, being gay was criminalized by the British yeah. um, when they colonized us. And before this, um, there was, you know, a history of queerness in South Asia for a long time. Um, I'm sure, you know, there are positives and negatives, but it wasn't criminalized. Um, it was, you know, a part of our history. It was a part of our culture. And ever since, you know, the British came, they criminalized it. I think there's just been like a massive shift and we haven't gotten back to what we were before. Um, it's very difficult to kind of change people's mindsets and to change politically um, mm, how mm, people view queerness. Mm, mm. Um, and I definitely think, you know, mm. colonialism had a, a huge effect on this. Mm -hmm. So 
um, I definitely think, you know, there are many ways that we see this trauma play out. Okay. And, and, and uh, homosexuality is still, um, I mean, the death sentence is, is, is enforced or is on the statute books, at least, yeah, in Bangladesh. Is, yeah, is that, yeah, that yeah I think so, yes. To, to this day. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, okay. but I believe so, yes. And about you, can you talk about, about Islam as, uh, uh, not as institutionalized mm-hmm. as, as Roman Catholicism, mm-hmm. for example, is, um, and therefore maybe it has kind of, um, it's a little more porous maybe when it comes to issues like queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, is there an official line on, from Islam on being, being gay, being queer? It's, it's kind of difficult to answer that question because, okay. for example, in Catholicism, there, you have, you know, the church, you have um, a pope yeah. who can say, this is, this is, you know, our view on this. Yeah. But, like, that just absolutely does not exist yeah. in Islam. Um, so there can, never, there can never really be, you know, an official idea about anything in Islam because, there, you know, we don't have institutions like that. Um, we have, you know, respected leaders who may say certain things, but... It doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree with that or, you know, not everybody will be following the same okay, kind of leaders yes, yeah. um, because it's more community-based um, rather than, you know, um, universal, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think people have read certain things into, you know, things in the Quran, um, the same way that people have read certain things um, into things in the Bible. Um, so I guess that, that would be the official idea, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of the official line on queerness in all religions. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and tell me, how have you navigated your way through your, your religious, your, your, your faith and your sexual identity? So I think for me, um, I always grew up, you know, as a Muslim person. That was like one of my first um, identities, you know. Mm. Um, and I think when people meet me as well, one of the first things they will notice about me is that I am, you know, I'm Muslim and I am brown. Those are two things that you can't really okay, deny can't, about me, Yeah, we can't yes, escape. Can They're away yes, from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they've definitely been... Um, they've definitely been very important parts of my identity for um, a long time in my life. And definitely when I was a teenager, I think um, I found Islam something that was um, not something that I wanted to really be a part of just because of how people viewed Islam, not because of how I viewed it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, that was one of the difficulties for me growing up and not seeing a reflection of Islam, of queerness, of any of these things, because I felt like I couldn't accept my identities and I couldn't be who I was. Um, And then again, growing up and being able to meet other queer Muslim people and being able to have these discussions about what does it mean to be queer and Muslim and what does it mean um, what does our faith mean to us and how does that work with our sexuality? I think that's been really important. And to see, you know, other people, to have friends who are queer, who are Muslim, who practice their faith in different ways, who come from um, different countries, um, who, ha- who are from different races, um, but we have this thing in common that we, we are queer and we're Muslim. Um, I think it just solidifies to me that, you know, there are two billion Muslim people in the world and Obviously, there's going to be queer people. And, you know, we are, we are like, I believe, you know, we're all made by God. And God made us the way that we are. So um, if there was not supposed to be queerness in Islam, then, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't exist. Yeah, 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 it wouldn't exist. Um, you, 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 you've said, or I've, at least I've read somewhere that um, in, in your regular life, um, 
that you speak um, several different languages in sometimes in one day. Um, and you described um, yourself as, as reading, uh, or sometimes as speaking uh, Banglish. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> um, so Banglish is basically Bangla and English combined. So Bangla is what we speak in Bangladesh, um, or Bengali, as we say in English. Um, so Banglish is basically what I would speak with my my siblings and my cousins, because it's just a mix of Bangla and English. Um, and I think it's almost like a language in itself because it feels so familiar to us. It doesn't feel familiar to, you know, my parents whose first language would be Bangla or to people whose first language would be English. Um, but it's just, you know, speaking in, say, English and then just switching over for certain words or combining mm-hmm. certain words together mm-hmm. to make a word that is both English and Bangla. Um, and I think this exists in um, for most people who are kind of like a third culture uh, person. So um, this is like a way that they navigate um, being able to speak multiple languages and being comfortable right. in multiple languages, especially was, yeah, yeah. especially with people yeah. who are close to them, I think. If you have siblings and cousins, I feel like you're most, more likely to have that language. And, and, and you say that the third culture? Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me what you mean. What, describe so, that to me. So third culture, I think, for me, what it means is when you are um, basically part of two cultures, but you're like in the middle, so you're like a it's like a third culture that you've created for yourself, which combines both of these cultures. And, um, and for you uh, right now, kind of where's, where is home? Where is, is, there, is, there a, is there a first culture? Is there a home? Where, where is your sense of home? Well, for me, I think my sense of home is definitely here just because, you know, this is where my family is and this is, you know, where I've grown up. It's where all my friends are. Um, but it's also complicated because, you know, I have so many memories of my home in Bangladesh where I did grow up and where I lived for such a long time. Um, so I wouldn't discount that as home, sure. but for sure, you know, my first home, I would say, is the home that I've lived in for a long time where my family is. Mm, mm. but one of the things that, that we're working on I, in, in UCD is um, what's kind of commonly or what's sometimes referred to as decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and I've been thinking about that and thinking about us meeting today, and I really wanted to find out a little bit about what you think about the term decolonizing um, and the attempt to decolonize a curriculum. Can you let me know what you think about any of some of that. So, I think decolonization is um, an interesting term because I think in a lot of ways it's become a buzzword in like in how a lot of things become buzzwords after like use. Um, I think if we really want to decolonize um, the curriculum or you know anything else, um, it needs to be it needs to be like very structural as well. You know, it needs to be that there are. It's not just we're reading texts that. Um, consider colonization or post-colonization is that we need staff there that are trained to do this. Um, It needs to be coming from all sides. Um, It can't be, you know, half-hearted for real decolonization. Um, But to be honest, you know, I don't know that much about decolonizing a curriculum. So I wouldn't be, I guess, the best person to speak on it, but that would would be my opinion. Mm, mm. It, it, um, so... I think it comes back a little bit to our, our conversation earlier on, when I think about this anyway. I think um, we, we have a, a, a curriculum, mm-hmm. we have a 
a reading list and we cite research and, and I speak to this as a psychologist mm-hmm. um, and we have certain images and at some level this is, a, this is only one aspect, isn't it, of, of decolonizing something, mm-hmm. but, um, but, but a very important aspect nonetheless. Um, and I think it's one of those kind of, for me it's been one of those light bulb moments that when I realize how, how colonized our teaching curriculum is. It's mm-hmm. like, oh gosh, this is a curriculum that relies so heavily on white uh, Western uh, middle-aged middle-aged men, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that's a bit of a light bulb moment personally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's hard not to see that how skewed um, so much of our education is to not include. Um, people who don't fit into those categories. You know, sometimes the, the acronym WEIRD, WEIRD is used, the mm-hmm. white, in, industrialised, educated, democratic. Mm-hmm. And I think psychology certainly has, um, maybe needs to really think about um, some of its position um, on where we sit on, on making very grand statements sometimes about humanity mm-hmm. based on a very, very small segment of humanity. Does mm-hmm. that make a little bit of sense to you? Yeah, yeah, definitely it does, yeah. I think, um, you know, this is something that we see a lot, I, I guess, with academia, because um, I remember, you know, when I was in UCD, um, I do feel, you know, I, I feel like I was lucky because a lot of the courses that I got to t- take did have, uh, did feature a lot of authors of color. And it was actually some of my first time reading these, reading authors of color in general. Um, so, you know, that's kind of what made me interested in studying post-colonial literature because I got to read these authors of color. But it was also interesting because a lot of the time um, it didn't feel connected, to, again, to Ireland and to um, what I was studying even because when I was studying um, these authors of color, it was always world literature. It was, you know, American studies and it was always um, one or two of these authors, you know? So um, I think, you know, academia does have a long way to go to, you know, to do with decolonization, but hopefully it's getting better. What was, what was your experience like in UCD over those years? Um, it was, it was a good experience. Um, I think I really enjoyed my time there. Um, you know, I, I feel like I got a really good education, a really good, um, really good education to go forth and do my master's and, you know, write the books that I have been writing but also it was um it was very lonely as well at times because you know as you know in UCD the biggest theater or at least when I was there was theater L in the arts building and because I was studying English I was often there and um, as an English student you know oftentimes theater L would be full hundreds yes it would be full and there would be you know every time I would have a lecture there I would go in and I would look at all the people around me I would be the only person of color and indeed but there could be three or four hundred people there yes you're the only person of Mm -hmm. color sitting in your lecture yeah lonely Mm -hmm. Mm. In reading your books, I have kind of thought, gosh, is this, this is a form of, of decolonization. You're, I think you're actively decolonizing um, some of, some of the, the canon. You're, you're providing, 
you know that that we touched on it again but that idea that that a curriculum mm -hmm. or that um literature or indeed even popular culture n needing to provide um a, a window and a mirror mm -hmm. so uh, our curriculum provides a window into other experience um but also and crucially it provides a mirror back to one's own experience. Mm -hmm. um, so I think of you in Theatre L, uh, there physically, but also with the curriculum that didn't provide the mirror back mm -hmm. to, to your experience. Um, and it's, it, I, I read in your work a real attempt to do that, to provide better, better, mirror, better windows and better mirrors. Mm -hmm. you, is, that, is that some of the motivation behind your behind your work it is. yeah for sure I mean I think for all writers um, we're always trying to capture this idea of universal universality right um, because this is something that we always say as a, as a positive this work this piece of fiction is so universal everybody can connect to it um, but I think as authors of color that is very difficult to achieve because as soon as you put um, a person of color in your book it's already somehow not universal because it's a person of color and we're told that you know People can't see themselves in a person of color. Um, but I think, you know, all books are universal um, if they are specific, because, you know, universality is not in a white person being at the center um, or a non-queer person being at the center. It's in, like, the heart of a book. You know, it's in, um, it's in the, those themes that you can connect to. Um, so that's what I always try to achieve. You know, I try to achieve the specific, and hopefully in that way, it can be universal. Right, right. That kind of personal to the mm -hmm. to, to the universal. Exactly, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that idea of of seeing of kind of seeing ourselves in literature is very powerful, isn't it? Mm -hmm. When we when we um, when we see ourselves, we I think by virtue then are validated um, and and connected to a community. I mean, you, you, you said that even maybe with your online experience of other Muslims who, who are queer, mm -hmm. something very uh, powerful happens when we see ourselves in the world and something very powerful happens when we don't see ourselves in the world. Mm -hmm. I and, definitely agree with that, yes. <laughs> and, and, and you're helping, you're, 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 you're writing, um, is, is putting a spotlight onto experience that for, for, well, in your life, in your growing up, wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? Or? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's been one of the most gratifying things, actually, about writing and um, being an author, is that so many people have, you know, reached out to me after reading my books, and they have said, I've never read a book like this before where, you know, I could see my experiences. Um, and then hearing also people say, now I feel like I can speak, um, I can, you know, speak to other people about my experiences or I can be an author. Um, I can write about women of color. Or I can write about queer Muslims. Um, I think that 
you know, that is an amazing feeling. It's a very gratifying feeling because obviously when I was younger, I didn't have that feeling. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think that's amazing. And I'm really glad that, you know, we're seeing more and more of this. We're seeing more authors of color, more um, queer authors um, from all different backgrounds. And we're seeing them, you know, getting the opportunity to write their books and write them authentically to their experience. And hopefully um, that just means, you know, more and more people will be able to see a reflection of themselves. Yeah. The, I'm kind of str struck by the, the kind of disruptive potential uh, of, of literature, the, the subversive potential mm -hmm. of literature to kind of disrupt the, the social order that, um, that is created and maintained because it suits um, some people. Um, and how powerful literature can be in, in being subversive. Um, and that's why books have been banned, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's why, because it's so powerful. Exactly, you, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, when, when, when I've been reading your work, I'm hearing that. It's quietly subversive um, in, the, in, in, in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. Is there a cost to that for you? I think there is, um, and I think this is the case for a lot of authors of color that we feel, or a lot of marginalized authors, I suppose, is that um, we feel like we have to meet a certain expectation or we have to write to a certain expectation and we feel like we have to represent every single person in our entire community because, you know, if somebody, if somebody reads my books and they take away something negative, it's going to reflect on everybody in my community somehow. But um, obviously this is, you know, it's not really achievable to represent mm. everybody in a community. It's impossible. Um, but I think, I think that is the cause. There's a, there's a lot of pressure on you to do that, um, even though it's impossible. Yeah, quite a burden there, mm -hmm. quite a burden. For sure. Adiva, you, you've, you've two more books. Um, which we're going to see next year, I think, and the year after. Mm -hmm. um, one in a million? A million to one. A million to one. Yes. And uh, Donut Fall in Love? Donut Fall in Love. Fall in Love. Um, so you're working hard. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, very hard. What does your writing day look like now? Um, so I've never been a person who likes routine. So I always say that I'm a very chaotic writer. So my writing day is not like, can look like anything, honestly. Um, I try to change it up all the time um, and you know because of the pandemic I'm at home I'm surrounded by my family so there's a lot going on all the time so right now it's just you know whenever I find a little bit of peace and quiet and I can write um, you know I, I'm hard at work. And what would you what would you say to um, to younger people out there who would like to be doing what you're doing, who would like to be writing, who would like to be writing the unwritten back in, what would you say to them? Um, I would say to keep going because I think when you are one of the first um, in, you know, really in any field, when you're one of the first or when you're doing something that hasn't been done before, it can be really, really difficult because there are people trying to close the door on you. Um, and so you have to be a person who doesn't care about the closed doors, who's breaking those doors down. Um, and it can be difficult, but um, I think it's worth it to keep going because there are so many people, you know, waiting for you um, to write that book or 
you know, to do whatever you're doing and to hear your voice, to hear your story. So, you know, just keep going. That would be my advice. Deepa, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure to, to have this conversation with you today. And it's, it's been a pleasure to read your work. Um, I, can only, I can only wish you well uh, and, and to thank you for, for, for your um, disruption, for breaking, for breaking those silences. Um, and it's just so fitting that we've been able to have this conversation um, in Mali, in, in, in Newman House, where your, your alma mater yes. <laughs> began its life. Um, so, so on behalf of, of the team here uh, at Mali and, and my colleagues at EDI in, in UCD, we want to say a very big thank you and uh, to wish you the very, very best into the future. And I do hope we meet again. Yes, thank you so much. It was really great speaking with you. And, you know, it, it was great to be here and um, to, you know, have this conversation. Um, it's always a privilege. Yeah, privilege is ours. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> for me, literature, for me, writers, for me, the, the, the arts, in, in some ways, um, capture, capture what's often um, missed in conversation, what's often missed um, um, historically when it comes to the lives of people um, who for various reasons in, in this country and beyond don't experience an equal world, uh, a world that is accommodating, is embracing of diversity and certainly a world that isn't inclusive. So uh, I, I, I feel the arts uh, and, and literature play a very, very central and important role in, in, in advocating for um, a more equal, a more just, a more diverse and inclusive society. You've been listening to a podcast from Radio Molly, which broadcasts from Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. If you've enjoyed this programme, do consider becoming a Molly member or giving membership to a friend. It's the best way to support the museum and its programming. Visit molly.ie forward slash membership to find out more. Thank you for listening.